You're listening to Talking Smart. The official podcast of the International Association of Sheet Metal, Air Rail, and Transportation Workers. This is Paul Pimentel, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Ben Nagy from Smart TD Communications and Michael Bland from Smart Communications. As we've been doing for the past two years, we are recording remotely due to the pandemic. Welcome to the 18th episode of Talking Smart. Each month, we bring you news, guests, and discussions of interest to smart members and working families across the United States and Canada. This episode is focused on what the Biden administration has done to benefit working families and smart members over the course of the past year. Our featured guests are Smart Director of Governmental Affairs, Steve Dodd, and Smart TD National Legislative Director, Greg Hines. They have been working tirelessly to advance our union's legislative agenda on Capitol Hill, as well as working with state legislative directors and sheet metal locals to ensure we are making advances at the state and local level as well. Brother Dodd, a member of Local 137 in New York City, spoke with us about the many ways in which funding and job creation under the new infrastructure plan will benefit smart members, as well as President Biden's executive order in support of project labor agreements, the status of Build Back Better legislation, the upcoming midterm elections, and more. This president has done something that all presidents have always talked about, but never were able to accomplish. You know, so this bipartisan infrastructure bill and now its implementation uh, means a great deal to not only sheet metal workers, but all workers, whether they're union or non-union across the United States. Brother Hines, a fifth generation railroader and a member of Local 1081 in Arizona, discussed current transportation legislation, the dangerous scourge of precision scheduled railroading, and the difference a pro-labor administration makes for smart members and working families across the United States. The most obvious are, are the appointments and the people that President Biden has surrounded himself with. He's actually put competent people in charge of these agencies. And they are all very labor friendly. I mean, it comes from the top down. In addition, listen for the open mic segment with smart general president Joseph Sellers at the end of this episode. He responds to a question about women in construction week, which is coming up soon, March 6th through the 11th. Unfair treatment flies in the face of unionism and our values. The labor movement is about solidarity. It's about standing up for each other. It's about the respect and dignity that each of us deserves. Greg and Steve, we'd like to welcome you back to the podcast. Thanks for inviting us. Uh, I look forward to the conversation. Yeah, God, we always like being on this and anything else we can do to help disseminate the information to the membership uh, of all the great things that have happening during this administration. Absolutely. And we're glad to have you here. Uh, last time we had you on was last April after the first 100 days of the Biden administration. And it was a pretty popular podcast as well. A lot of people were listening into that and it was a hit. People want to know what's going on around them and as things change every day. Of course, we're going to have you on for our President's Day episode, a special episode, looking back at the last year of the Biden administration, where things are now, where things were before, and a lot of the developments that have occurred, and a lot of the accomplishments as well over the past year. Steve, my first question is for you. It's on the minds of members across the country. What's going on with the Build Back Better bill 
And why is passing it so important to labor? Why is this such a high priority for people in labor? Well, thanks uh, for the question. And, and uh, you know, the reality is we really need to have the number two piece, which is this piece. You know, the implementation of the infrastructure bill is a great thing, uh, but Build Back Better like kind of brings it home. And what we say is, you know, we're not done yet. We must get Congress to deliver its promise on the passage of the second thing, the 1.75 infrastructure bill to the Build Back Better. You know, Build Back Better will make an unprecedented investments in American families and further boost the economic growth. You know, the bill applies to labor standards to clean energy, tax credits, expands registered apprenticeship programs and pre-apprenticeship programs, and invests in high-speed rail projects, addresses indoor air quality in schools, and supports workers' right to organize by making monumental reforms to the National Labor Relations Act. So as a follow-up, since the previous bipartisan infrastructure bill has passed, and that was a couple of months ago, what does this mean for smart members? Well, first of all, I, I think it's worth going back for a second and just noting to everybody the importance of the infrastructure bill in the first place. You know, th this president has done something that all presidents have always talked about, but never were able to accomplish. You know, so this bipartisan infrastructure bill and now its implementation uh, means a great deal to not only sheet metal workers, but all workers, whether they're union or non-union across the United States. But what we've done in particular is we've been meeting with the DOE, the EPA, the DOT, and the Department of Ed and the White House about the implementation of this legislation. The best way to do this is to go forward and share all the recommendations about the programs that we can to the administration that support our members. Uh, we're asking that those programs that allocate funding for improving indoor air quality and encourage and incentivize the utilization of this, what we call the skilled and trained certified workforce as defined in the UC Davis ventilation verification white paper. The DOE has a lot of money for training and we're just wanting to make sure that they're including and accepting our training and our certification programs in development so we can qualify for the funding. You know, we're also urging DOE in the White House to work with the DOL to address the misclassification issues. We're making sure that they understand the urgency of this issue that's been addressed in conjunction with the implementation of the bipartisan infrastructure bill to ensure that workers are provided with prevailing wage protections on these projects. And in particular, we really want to th say thank you to uh, Tommy Fishback and John Christiansen for helping and sharing this model of the local hire, the, the community workforce agreement, and the PLA language. You know, we're sharing these policies with DOE and DOT to encourage them to utilize these models as they develop their programs. So, hi, Greg. So we've discussed a lot, you know, two-person crews on the podcast at great length. And uh, we know that it is an important issue for the uh, freight members of TD. We had a little bit of a disappointment here with it not being included in the Infrastructure Act, but we believe that there's a regulatory solution to it, thanks to the Biden administration. Uh, can you tell us right now uh, what the status is with two-person crew, and then maybe also talk a little bit about how the infrastructure bill has positives for not just freight rail, but also our transit members and our bus members. Okay, first let's recap a little bit. The INVEST Act, which was passed out of the House, which was the infrastructure bill that the House put together, which had all of our provisions, including two-person crew. They sent that over to the Senate and the Senate decided that they weren't gonna take that bill up. And instead they were gonna create a bipartisan infrastructure bill. 
which is what they did. And in order for anything to be in the bipartisan infrastructure bill, it had to have bipartisan support in the Senate. Unfortunately, two-person crew in the Senate didn't have one Republican who supported it. And we met with over 40 senators trying to find someone to be supportive of two-person crew, and none of them would. So that's the reason it didn't make it into the bipartisan bill. But uh, all hope's not lost. And we have FRA, who is going to be reintroducing the two-person crew regulation with the support of the president and support of Secretary of Transportation Buttigieg. Buttigieg has come out publicly saying that he supports two-person crew, and it's a high priority for Department of Transportation. We've had many conversations with FRA and Amit Bose, and I'm very confident that we're going to get a two-person crew regulation. With that being said, that doesn't mean we're going to give up on legislative opportunities to push two-person crew and get it over the finish line. We'll continue to look for opportunities to get that across, but it's important that we find some Republican senators who will support two-person crew, and that's where we need the help of our members. I don't want our members to be afraid to contact their Republican senators and talk to them about the importance of this. And the more they hear from our membership, the stronger our chances will be. But I think things look really good for two-person crew and the regulation, and we will continue to pursue legislative outlets for it as well. As far as the Build Back Better that actually was passed, there was a lot of stuff in there that was really good for us. Of course, it didn't have the big thing of two-person crew, but bus driver assaults was included in the bill, record amounts of money for transit, record amounts of money for Amtrak, and then also a PSR study, which we need the data to support our argument of how evil PSR is for our members. And precision scheduled railroading has been the worst thing to happen in the railroad industry in my lifetime. And so that's why this scientific study on PSR is so necessary so that we have the ammunition to use that to craft legislation to combat this PSR. There's the same thing happening with the long train study it was also included in the bipartisan infrastructure bill. The long train study has taken place at the GAO, the uh, Government Accountability Office, and also FRA is doing a study, which we are involved with, uh, Jared and I are both involved with, and we also hired Bob Lobby, who was the uh, operations director for FRA, and he retired a couple of years back, and he's a wealth of knowledge. And so he's going to be helping us uh, from our side in crafting the study to make sure that it's fair and it's not slanted in any way towards uh, the railroads and that it actually represents real conditions out there and not some manufactured ideal situation where they say, well, see, long trains are great. They work great. So we want to make sure that it takes place in challenging terrain and different situations and weathers, you know, hot and cold so that it's a fair study. But all of that data will be uh, used to craft legislation or regulation to limit these monster trains, which are very, very dangerous. Also, there are Chrissy Grant money. Now, Chrissy Grant money is money that the railroads, predominantly short lines, take advantage of. Chrissy Grants are also available for labor unions. And unfortunately, we've never applied for Chrissy Grants in the past, and now we are applying for Chrissy Grants. And so I think there's some good things that could happen as far as getting a Chrissy grant for us. And that money would be used for education. It could be used for region meeting. Anything having to do with safety or education, you can use that money for. So we look forward to finding out how that shakes out. 
And just sort of as a follow-up, the environment, I assume, is a lot more hospitable for you to advocate for our members, both on the Capitol and on the state level. I noticed that a few state legislative directors have had interactions both with the Secretary of Transportation and also with Amit Bose. So can you kind of talk about how some of the clouds that maybe we had to contend with in the past four years from a legislative side have actually cleared a bit? Uh, Absolutely. Let me give you some contrast between the previous FRA administrator, Ron Batori, and Amit Bose, the current administrator. Under Batori, we would have meetings with FRA where they would not be collaborative at all. They would basically be him telling us what they were going to do and how much smarter he was than us because he was a railroad CEO. He never once asked for our input on anything. Contrast that with the meat bows, who it's not uncommon for him to call me on my cell phone, to call Jared on his cell phone, to call Jeremy on his cell phone with questions and, you know, throw things back and forth. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? It's very interactional. And when he went to California with the uh, supply chain issues and he was going to meet with the railroads down in Long Beach, he asked if I'd set up a meeting with all of our general chairman out there and our state director out there so we could get their intake before he talked to the railroads. That would have never happened under the Batori administration. He wouldn't have cared what we had to say. He would have just met with the railroads and done whatever they said. So it's a great place that we're in as far as the FRA and the positive things that are happening there. Amit Bose is very pro-labor. And uh, just recently, uh, probably a month ago, there was the uh, APTA, which is the big organization for passenger rail in America. And they had a giant convention conference in Florida. And Amit was asked to speak on a panel with the FTA administrator as well. And he noticed that there was nobody on the panel from labor. So he made sure that I was on the panel and that ATU's uh, political director was there as well. And so I, you know, I knew I was going to be speaking on a panel, but I had no idea how big this uh, organization was. So I went to Florida and I show up and it's in a giant theater, like 2,500 seat theater. We're set up on stage. It's a nice set. You know, they have stage managers, TV cameras everywhere. And I thought, wow. But the only reason that I was there and the other union guy was there was because Amit Bose wanted labor to have a voice. And it's a good thing we were there because Stephen Gardner was there, who's now the CEO of Amtrak. And he wanted to paint this rosy picture that everything's good in passenger rail and bus transit, that, you know, everything's good. They're doing everything they can. Things look positive. And uh, the other labor guy and I, we had to break the reality out. You know, we spoke the truth. We said everything isn't rosy and there's a lot of things that need to be done. And it's not getting better. It's getting worse. But my point being that the only reason I was there was because Amit Bose wanted to make sure labor was involved. And on the other side, as, as far as the Secretary of Transportation, they've notified us several times when they're traveling around doing their infrastructure talks around the country, and they want people from our organization there and introducing them. So we've had our members introducing the Secretary of Transportation in Kansas, in New York, in Arizona. Uh, there's probably a couple of others, but there's going to be even more. And his chief of staff says that they so enjoy working with us because they call us, we line things up, and it always works out well. So we have a really strong relationship with DOT and the Secretary of Transportation, stronger than I've ever seen since I've been in D.C., and the same with FRA. And in DOL, it applies there as well. We had a situation recently which required some attention from the Department of Labor 
So we went through Secretary of Transportation to find out who would be the best person to talk to over there. He put us in contact with the top person, the decision maker for this area of expertise, which we had to have the conversation with. But the interaction with all of these agencies is just night and day. Let me give you an example. Like I'm telling you how much conversation and interaction we have with the Secretary of Transportation. In the last administration, the Secretary of Transportation refused to even meet with us for four years, never even got a conversation. So the contrast could not be greater. It's a lot better now. Keep up to date with smart news, receive important updates, access member benefits, and more with the Smart App. Text the word APP to 67336 to get started. Message and data rates may apply. Hi, Steve and Greg, this is Michael. If we could shift to the overall national economic picture for just a moment. Steve, as you know, inflation is a big issue to a lot of members and their families and Americans in general, for that matter. We've even heard recently about members in Northern California looking at gas prices over $4 a gallon. What do you think is really driving these increases? And what have you heard about anything being done to address inflation in general and fuel prices in particular? Well, Michael, you're exactly right. We have heard a lot about this recently. And I'm going to tell you the way that I see it is this. You know, for two years, people have really not been driving their cars. They have not been going out and about. They have not been spending money on other things that they are now. So what does that mean? That means that now that that stuff is back, that those people are starting to drive again, that those products are starting to get sold again. Unfortunately, people are doing what people do. They're taking advantage of that fact. And they're uh, raising the prices of gas. They're raising the prices at the stores for the products that we buy. To give you a perfect example, if you're working on your house, the construction materials to build a house now and the prices of the plywood and the two-by-fours has gone through the roof. Absolutely nothing has changed except for the fact that there was a major increase in people doing now construction on their home. So that prices went up. The only thing that I had heard about addressing the issue of the gas prices was the fact that the president was trying to find a way to release some of the reserves that we have to uh, combat that and get those prices down. So part of it is economics 101. There's increased demand for some stuff, which affects prices. But I've also been reading about a number of corporations that are kind of taking advantage of the moment to boost profits and to increase shareholder returns when really it's not driven by their increased costs. It's driven by them trying to make extra profit by taking advantage of the current situation. It's absolutely true. And when it comes to supply chain issues, which we all hear so much about the problem with supply supply chain issues, and the railroads uh, say that it's because of a labor shortage, this is self-created. Precision scheduled railroading. The railroads laid off 30% of their workforce prior to the pandemic. And then when the pandemic hits, they want to blame labor for the supply chain issues, when in fact, it's entirely created by the railroads. They had the staffing all along to make sure that there was no supply chain disruptions, but they didn't because they're greedy and Wall Street demands that they cut labor costs. And they do that. I would equate that the same to people who blame Biden for inflation. It's price gouging. It's nothing more than that. It's corporations taking advantage of a crisis, which is what they do time and time again. And we should not be blind to the fact that they're lying to us. More than it being inflation, it's man-made price gouging. 
Well, let's talk about, you know, UP had that very well-publicized incident out in Los Angeles with that particular stretch of railroads. I'm sure uh, you saw it, Greg. It made national news. But the first thing that UP did when uh, that particular situation came to light and the video went viral of all of the packages and everything strewn across the strip is they started to blame the city for not policing their own railroads. Right. They want no accountability. They don't talk about the fact that they cut their police force. They cut the railroad police. And it's all part of the precision scheduled railroading, cutting as many people as you possibly can and doing as much with as little as you can. And it's an absolutely horrible business plan for long-term viability for the railroad. It's all about short-term profits. And very little thought is given to the long-term effects of this. And that's the thing that's so scary to me is what the railroad industry will look like years from now if this business model continues. And that's why we're fighting it with everything we can because it's bad, not only for railroad workers, it's bad for America. Yeah, the videos were, were just striking and uh, it, was, yeah, it was basically uh, shameful, really. It was uh, shameful that there was a section of one of the nation's largest cities that looked like that and it was because uh, Union Pacific did not bother to police that area. And trains frequently stopped there because they couldn't move because longer trains means that they have to stop frequently because more things mechanically can go wrong. So just another case of corporations seeking welfare instead of being accountable and using some of their profits to maintain their business model. And let's not forget, Ben, that the railroads are making more money now than they ever have. And they're not able to service their customers. And it just shows you how bad this is for the long term. Absolutely. And that's and, and that's part of the problem with just caring about shareholder profit, right? You're not you're not thinking about building a business, you're not thinking about building an industry. It's just whatever the shareholders want. That's not a good business model. And that's been shown to fail. You look at Sears, you look at all the different places that have either died out or are dying. And that's business model they followed. And these railroad executives seem to be thinking that's the way to go, which is unfortunate. Let, let's say it. It's criminal. Yeah, it is. It is. And especially since this is part of our national security, right? This is a critical industry and the nation's critical infrastructure. And these people are playing around with it like it's their, their little toy box. You also don't hear a lot of talk about price gouging when it comes to inflation. It often gets reported as just kind of this huge oil tanker thing that you can adjust very slightly in one direction or the other, and the federal government can do something. But a lot of it's really driven by individual corporations that are deciding to jack up their prices in the moment, right? Absolutely. The the lemming style of capitalism. You know, if one person does it, well, everyone else has to, or one corporation does it, then the other ones have to do it in order to follow suit. The other problem that you have is the people who report on this, well, where do they get their advertising revenue from, right? The same people who are, who are uh, capitalizing on this. So they're going to be hesitant to report on this. They're going to try to blame everybody else but these corporations that they re- rely on for advertising dollars. Yes. Are you saying don't, don't bite the hand that feeds you? Exactly. Yes, Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. In the coming weeks, look for Smart's brand new website at smart-union.org, your revamped home for up-to-date, personalized information from your union, including the Sheet Metal Job Bank, Transportation Division Safety Reports, and more. So, Greg, 
a lot of people out there complain about how there's no difference between the political parties. And we could spend a whole entire five-hour podcast, if we wanted to, talking about this topic. Now, when it comes to administrations, and I'm thinking specifically about the last two administrations, some people even try to say the same thing. Can you tell us a little bit about what the biggest differences are between the last two administrations, which I, I would say are probably as different as you can ever get when it comes to labor? Well, I think the most obvious are, are the appointments and the people that President Biden has surrounded himself with. He's actually put competent people in charge of these agencies, and they are all very labor friendly. I mean, it comes from the top down, and we always have a seat at the table. That never happened in the last administration at all, and it happened very minorly in the Obama administration. IRAPS, perfect example. Steve, you were here when, when he made that IRAPS proposal, this being Trump, mm -hmm. um, during his administration. Can you talk a little bit about that and what they proposed and then what wound up happening afterwards? You know, uh, when he took office, uh, we were lucky enough to have our general president appointed to his uh, apprenticeship task force committee. But the unfortunate thing about that was he was one of only three labor leaders of the other 23 people that were on that task force that were non-union uh, that had anything to do with unions and knew anything about apprenticeships. Our saving grace at the end of the day in that space was actually the Secretary of Labor, Alex Acosta. Reason why? Because those people wanted to eliminate the very word apprenticeship in everything they were doing when it came to IRAPS. And he came back after digesting it a little bit and said, no, we're not going to take the word apprenticeships out. That's exactly what these things are. And it has to be left in there. Uh, and that's what they're going to be. And I'll tell you, you know, if it wasn't for the continued drive from the general president, from Sean McGarvey and from Doug McCarran, we would have been rolled on it. And so when it came to Acosta, unfortunately, right, he was one of our few, I guess you could call allies, right, that was there in the Trump administration. But he was dealing with a lot of opposition, too, right? Yeah, we even had to, to that point, we even had Acosta at our training center in Maryland at Local 100. And he did the virtual welder, took his jacket off and wanted to be competitive. And you know what? He got in and got dirty and he was not afraid to do so. So he understood us, respected unions, and I think became, you know, a pretty close um, ally of the general presidents. They even talked after he was gone from office when they could. So after Acosta was left, after he left that position, he went on his way and they brought a new guy in. And one thing led to another, and then they proposed IRAPs, right? Right. And we wound up having to spend a lot of time and a lot of resources fighting IRAPs, which would have undermined our uh, apprenticeship programs by introducing non-union alternatives to them that would have undermined the standards that we set. What did the Biden administration do about that later on? Uh, they just said that there's uh, that's the end of that. They would they cut off all the funding for it. But just back up a minute and know this, you know, it took an effort that was across the entire country. 350,000 letters were sent in on behalf of those men and women that are in and uh, understand and support apprenticeship programs. Absolutely. And a lot of people listening here probably had a role to play in that by sending in letters, submitting comments to the Department of Labor. And it took a lot, a lot, all the building trades coming together and fighting that, which was a battle that we shouldn't have had to fight. Right. They, they were the ones who proposed it. They put us, they tried to put us on the defensive, but we wound up coming through on that. You're listening to Talking Smart. Mobilize, organize, unionize. Do you have story ideas or have a question for the general president or union leadership? Call us toll free at 844-984-0947 with your questions or ideas. Once again, 844 984 
Uh, as you know, uh, it's 2022, and uh, with an even-numbered year, uh, that brings uh, some elections coming up. Uh, so we have the midterms in November and primaries before that. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what is at stake this year? And uh, Steve, go first, and then Greg uh, can also respond. Sure. This is another subject we can talk about for five hours. Uh, reality is this. When I look at what happened in 2021 and the losses that we suffered there, I only hope that that's not the preamble to what's about to show up in November of 2022. And I'll use this point. About 29 members of the House are leaving, either retiring or they're running for other office, which means for us, that's 29 new relationships, no matter how you look at it, that we have to have with members in the House. That's on the Democratic side. The worry that we have there is this. We may win every single one of those seats, but we have to nurture those members along. In other words, there are going to be new members that we don't have existing relationships with in the House. They may came from a state level position. Every single vote that has been taken so far in this administration, it's been so friendly, has been very close. And a lot of times it's been right down party lines. They're going to be able to massage things the way they want them before it even comes to the floor. Those are the things you potentially lose uh, if you lose the House. So uh, what's at stake? Everything's at stake. The president has been doing things that are great for not only the men and women that we represent, but for all of American people that are in this country. And the reality is he cannot continue to move those things forward if he has obstructionists, which he will have. And they've said it. The Republicans have actually said in the House that one of their first orders of business is to start impeachment proceedings against the president. So just a small indicator of what could be possibly to come if they don't maintain the House. And I think it's important to clarify a little bit about the Senate because there's a lot of misconception amongst our members and the general public as well. The Democrats have the slimmest possible margin in the Senate. It's a 50-50 Senate with the vice president as the tiebreaker. Almost every single bill that passes out of the Senate needs 60 votes because of the filibuster. So in reality, if you're looking at who the majority is, there's not really a majority other than who gets to set the agenda, which is very important, and who are the committee chairs, which is also very important. But as far as actually passing legislation out of the Senate, you need 60 votes. And a 50-50 Senate is definitely not, you couldn't say that that's a Democratic Senate, they should be able to do whatever they want. That's just not the real world that we live in. So it's important that we not only hold the Senate, but we pick up seats in the Senate to get that further and further to where to point where moderate Republicans are going to be more negotiable so that we can actually pass things out of the Senate. So uh, what, one last question. We talked about a number of key wins for working families over the past year, really made possible in large part by a pro-labor administration. Now that 2021 is over, what is the Biden administration doing that will benefit smart members in 2022? If I could start on that, I got to tell you that, you know, first and foremost, uh, what just happened on February 4th was the signing executive order signing of the project labor agreement executive order. And that was, you know, requiring that all project labor agreements on federal projects and federal construction above $35 million. What's important about that is that we know that when they get that PLA on that job, there's going to be no work stoppages. It's going to be done on time, on budget, and that we are almost guaranteed that we are going to be the ones performing the work because we are the skilled trades that do it. There's a White House task force on worker empowerment 
and organizing report, right? That was uh, the task force that we were involved in, and we submitted nearly 70 recommendations to support worker organizing and collective bargaining agreements. We sent the White House like dozens of recommendations, and they were addressed, including how to fix the worker misclassification, how to make it easier for unions to apply for federal grants and the utilization of registered apprenticeship programs, along with community benefits agreements and project labor agreements. Local hire was another thing that was a provision that we wanted in there and the responsible contracting policies uh, in federal projects. The other thing is they just released a bipartisan infrastructure law funding. So what that does is that will closely track the infrastructure and working with the White House on the federal agency's implementation of the bill to ensure that the requirements of the grantees adhere to labor standards such as PLAs, registered apprenticeship program utilization, and local hire. Uh, These are great things for us, and they're only going to get better as they go along because they keep on like adjusting this law guide and we'll we'll be continuing to flag opportunities as they're announced. The weatherization assistance program grants, we're looking into that through the Department of Energy. Uh, They released two funding opportunities for weatherization assistance programs, 12.3 million for the SECR, I mean RC grants, and then 1.5 million for community scale pilot program grants. So These are things that are absolutely essential for us and everything that we're trying to do when it comes to energy efficiency and uh, wage equalization, and then your weatherization assistance programs. Just to follow up on the worker misclassification piece, is that especially critical for the building trades where misclassification of full-time workers as independent contractors to avoid uh, any labor regulations or paying benefits is is kind of rampant in the non-union building trades and not only harms the workers, but it makes it harder to organize. So addressing that is key for us. 100%. Because what happens and what we've had to deal with our entire existence is people that are unscrupulous contractors that come in and try to undermine by way of bid the jobs that are you know up for uh, bid by this. What if it's a, let's just say it's a sheet metal job and there's a million dollars worth of sheet metal on a job. They're going to try to bring in somebody and misclassify them on that job site as maybe a laborer whose uh, prevailing wage and whose package is a lot lower than ours in some cases. And that's how they get away with, and that's how they undermine the bid process uh, to our contractors that are bidding the job. Well, looking forward in 2022, our contract negotiations on freight rail are of essential importance right now. And because of the appointments that Biden has made to the National Mediation Board, we are in a far stronger position for negotiating. We have a labor-friendly National Mediation Board, our Surface Transportation Board. We have a good relationship with them for first time in a long time and with FRA. So the contract negotiations are going to be very important and we've been positioned in a very good spot because of the maneuvering from uh, President Jeremy Ferguson and the appointments from President Biden. So that's a really important thing and, and we're on the right path there. As far as legislative things happening in 2022, we are trying to strengthen. We got some passenger rail assault language put in the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And now we're going to push forward with increased penalties and giving the FRA the ability to fine people who are not either a railroad or a railroad worker. Just like FAA can fine unruly passengers on airplanes, we want to get some legislation passed, which would allow FRA to do the same thing on passenger rail, as well as FTA on bus and transit. 
You know, based on what both of you have said, we've got a lot of good information about what's going on over the last year. And, you know, I think one thing people don't consider is the fact that we went through four years of attacks on labor, four years of attacks that are unprecedented. You, you compare this to what Reagan did, to what Bush did, some of the other presidents out there, and what they did pales a comparison to a lot of these attacks that you see today on the railroads, in terms of what you saw, in terms of how COVID was handled and the hole that was dug in the economy that was handed to this current administration at the end of it. So a lot has been done in a very short period of time. And we've made a lot of progress, but there's still a lot of progress that still needs to be made. But it's also we're starting from way down at the bottom is where things were left. Steve, Greg, I want to thank you for going over a lot of what's going on over the last year. It's a lot of good information. There's a lot that's happened. And um, I want to thank you as well. You guys do a lot of good work up there on Capitol Hill. You do a lot of good work talking to these politicians. I know I know myself personally, I'm not as, as patient as the two of you are. <laughs> two of you have a better way than I do of talking to politicians. That's why I've gotten thrown out of rooms in Virginia because of that. <laughs> but at the same time, I want to thank both of you. This has been really informative. You guys were a hit the last time you were on. We know you're going to be a hit again. And I thank you both for being on here. This is a lot of valuable information that you got. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Always, always a pleasure, uh, you know, being on and uh, look forward to the next time. Thanks, Greg. And thanks, Steve, uh, once again for your appearance. Uh, it was great. And we'll uh, keep working it through 2022. Yeah, thanks to both of you. Your last time you were with us, that episode's in the top five all time of Talking Smart episodes. And we'll see if we can uh, get this one to go even further. Thanks again. I just want to add one more thing. we got a good team there. Today, we're talking to Greg and Steve. Greg and Steve have a good team behind them. All right. We got Jenny Miller, who works over in the TD Legislative Department, along with Jared Cassidy. And we got Tiffany Haynes on the sheet metal side as well. And, and there's some fantastic people, along with uh, Dean Mitchell. And uh, we got probably the best team out there. Again, I want to thank you, thank them. Um, and now we're going to go to our next segment, which is going to be our open mic segment with General President Sellers. But before that, we're going to have a short break and uh, we're going to listen from the Smart Women's Committee. Save the date. Smart's second annual celebration of Women in Construction Week is next month, March 6th through the 11th. Text the word SISTERS to 67336 to receive registration details as soon as they are available. Message and data rates may apply. Welcome to the open mic segment of our podcast. General President Sellers, I want to thank you for being on this episode of the podcast. Yeah, thank you all. Uh, it's great to be here and, and answer these questions that our members have. Thanks again. So we have a question that has been asked frequently online in many different ways and on different outlets be it through social media, or even via email from some members. It pertains to Women in Construction Week, which is coming up next month, starting on the 6th of March. The vast majority of comments we hear are positive and supportive of our fellow sisters and their celebration of women in the construction industry. However, at the same time, some people are asking, why the focus on women in construction and why now? Well, first, uh, thank you for that question. Uh, I have heard this question before, but before I begin, I want to reiterate what I tell members when I'm at their union meetings or if I'm visiting their job sites or shops, and as I visit different locals across both of our countries, no question is out of bounds. We are a union, and we all have the right to be heard and treat it with respect. That pertains to the members who asked this question, as well as it pertains to the sisters who we celebrate. On the first part of the question, 
The construction industry has been dominated by males for as long as our union has been in existence. It has only been in the last several decades that women have been entering and making their mark in our industry. Unfortunately, women have faced harassment, bullying, and hazing. They are not welcome at many workplaces. They are considered less strong than their male counterparts or unable to do the same work. All of this is false. More women are now entering the trade, and while conditions may have improved, there are continued disgraceful and horrific acts. Each of us must stand up when anyone, any one of us, is harassed, bullied, and hazed. Make sure that we ensure all members are treated fairly, and silence is not an option. Unfair treatment flies in the face of unionism and our values. The labor movement is about solidarity. It's about standing up for each other. It's about the respect and dignity that each of us deserves. It is also why we started the I Got Your Back campaign, to support every sister and every brother in our union, regardless of their gender, their skin color, how they identify themselves, or where they came from. Our Smart Sisters Committee embraces Women in Construction Week to help ensure women in our industry get connected to share experiences and handle situations. Now realizing, like everyone else in our union, they need to put food on the table for their family and they need to put a roof over their head. Imagine being on a job and you are the only woman you see. You know, ironically, this is the same reason why unions were formed, for workers that perform the same work to connect with each other and to share experiences. And I would say on the second part of the question of timing and why are we doing this now, I would say the timing is not ideal because I believe this is long, long overdue. Our sisters, our women's committee will celebrate solidarity. They will celebrate the dignity of work and they invited you to join the union family of sisterhood and brotherhood. I urge everyone to take the time to drop into their meeting and to share their enthusiasm that they have for their career path and for their union. Women in Construction Week starts March 6th, and they will be holding a happy hour event on Friday, March 11th. Please join us in celebrating our Women's Committee and our Women in Construction Week. Thank you, and thank you for the question. Thank you, General President Sellers. You know, we really thank you for being here on this podcast. And when it comes to the Smart Women's Committee, we got a lot of great trade unionists that are on that committee and they're doing a lot of great work and, a, and they're working hard and they're standing out. You know, we encourage everybody, just follow the general president's lead here to attend, see what you, what our smart sisters are doing. That's going to be March 6th through March 11th. Friday, March 11th is when we're going to be having a smart women's happy hour, an event. It's going to be fun. It's going to be an opportunity for everybody to come and meet your smart sisters and hear their stories and hear what, what they're doing, what they've got going on. I want to thank you, General President Sellers, for being on this podcast, for your support for the committee and for what they're doing. And until next time. It is my great pleasure to be here and to be part of the Women in Construction Week. We are moving this union forward. We are moving as a group in unity, in solidarity, as a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And we're going to do more together than we can apart. And that's one of our values. And we're going to continue to push as hard as we can to make sure that the workplaces are safe and respected by all. Thank you. Yeah.